So this is Luke chapter 22. And the context is, this is at the Last Supper. And Jesus has just instituted communion as we know it. He's just broke bread and he's, he's given them the wine. And he's told them that they are to do this in remembrance of him. And then the disciples, and don't laugh at them because we do dumb things as well. They start to have an argument in verse 24. They've just had the very first communion meal. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Can you believe that? You know? They've just had communion and they start squabbling. I'm better than you are. You know, Jesus is going to use me more than he's going to use you. And they have this dispute and Jesus addresses them. And then verse 31 and 32 is all I'm going to hit this morning. But I really want you to listen carefully. Because, you know, I wanted to go to the cross in particular, or I wanted to go to resurrection morning, but I just felt God continually pulling me back to these two verses. So listen carefully. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. He says your name twice. It's important. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That's it. (laughs) Satan is the accuser. He is the slanderer. That's what his name means. And, And don't ever underestimate the intensity of the hatred that he has for you. There is nothing in this world that you hate as much as he hates you. Nothing. You can't actually understand it. He detests you, absolutely despises you, and wants to destroy your life. He hates you. If you are not a child of God and not following Jesus, he hates you because you're made in the image of God. And every time he looks at you, he sees God's character in just the very design of you as a person. And if you're following Jesus, he hates you a million times more to the power of a million. He just rages every time he sees you. And every day as you walk with God in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he transforms you and you gradually become more like Jesus, he hates you even more. He hates you. We were at a shop yesterday evening and we spotted a a youth wearing a Manchester City top just felt the anger rise within me as I saw him. And I thought, this is irrational behavior. He's just wearing a Man City top. Nothing wrong with it. Steady. And, <laughs> but you just, just you take that on. And, and when Jesus sees you, he sees you wearing... Or when, when Satan sees you, he sees you wearing Jesus. He sees you wearing the presence of God. He sees the marks on you of a child of God. And he hates you. Just hates you unexplainable, irrational hatred. He is real and he is powerful. But Satan has to ask. (laughs) Love this. And we get this in Job chapter 1 as well. I'm not taking time this morning to go to it because I'm sure you're well familiar with it. But Satan has to ask permission to give a child of God a hard time. He's on a leash. 
And we should take encouragement from the fact that no matter what we go through as followers of Jesus, God has permitted it because he knows in his strength we can handle it. He has not permitted any of us to undergo anything that is beyond our capacity to stand in his strength within it. Satan goes to Job in Job 1 and says, Is Job really that righteous? Is he really that good? Let me have a shot at him. And God gives permission. And similar here, we have this picture of of Satan coming to ask if he could have a shot at Peter. And he is given permission. We've talked in Ephesians about the heavenly realms, about this spiritual dimension where God is and Jesus is and angels are. And it's also accessible to the principalities and the powers and the authorities of darkness. And it's also accessible to us in prayer, this spiritual realm. And this conversation has happened at some stage in that realm. Satan has gone and asked permission to take a shot at Peter. Satan can do nothing without permission, no matter what you are going through. And this is a small community, but there's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff a lot of the time. And some of it we're aware of, and some of it maybe we're not even aware of. He had to get permission. And permission was granted because you can stand in the midst of it. And what was the thing that Satan has asked for? Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift you, to sift you. Now the you here is plural. Jesus is addressing Peter, but he says you plural. So he's referring to all of the 12. And I think he's referring to the entire church throughout the ages. Satan has asked to sift you, to sift you. And I brought a prop to let you see what that means. This. Now, in case you came in this morning and you looked at this and you thought it was some new percussion instrument that we got and I was going to get up and start banging on it. Who knows what this is? Nigel, you're not allowed to say because you work in the trade. What is this? It's a sieve. It's a sieve. What's it known as in the trade? Yeah, go on. It's a riddle. You ever heard of a riddle? Well, here's what you do with a riddle. And I can still remember my father using this. Well, he used a a different one with, with a wooden surround in it. But... He would have put in a shovel full of builder's sand. And a shovel full of wet sand is a heavy thing. And then he would lift it and start shaking it. And everything would shake you know, as he's shaking this thing. And the whole point is that the sand would drop through nice and finely sieved. Any lumps or pebbles or bits and pieces that are, that are in it are caught by the mesh. And then he uses his sand to go and make mortar to, to lay blocks and there's no lumps or no, no bits and pieces in the middle of it and it gives a good strong bind between the blocks. Now this is also used to sieve wheat. And what, what somebody would have done with one of these or something similar, it might have been bigger, it might have actually had a wooden frame with somebody at each, at each side of it, shaking it together. You put in the grain and you start to shake Shake, 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 shake. Any dirt that's in there falls through. And then after a while, you you skate the whole lot up in the air and you catch it again. And any chaff that's mixed in with it blows away in the wind. But it's a vigorous job. Two boys holding either end of this wooden frame and shaking and shaking and up and down and shaking and shaking. The dirt goes through, the chaff blows away. And what you're left with at the end is the grain. 
the good stuff is kept in the riddle, in the sieve. Or people would have used these as well whenever they were trying to find gold at the bottom of a river. So they would have, they would have shoveled up grit and sand and banged it in here and shake, shake, shake. All the grit, all the sand falls through and hopefully a few little nuggets of gold left caught by the mesh. And the picture that Jesus is using here when he talks to Peter is, he says, Satan wants to put you in here and shake and shake and shake. He wants to sift you, Peter. He wants to sift you. You're going to get shaken, Peter. You're going to get shaken. It's going to be turbulent. It's going to be disorient. You imagine yourself in here getting knocked about. You don't know where you are. There's nothing to hold on to. Things are banging off you. You're getting tossed up and down and caught again. And, and Jesus says, Peter, that's what Satan wants to do with you. He wants to sift you like wheat. It's buffeting. It's disorienting. Satan is basically saying, I'm going to take you and I'm going to shake you and shake you and shake you. And at the end, it will become quite apparent that there's nothing there. Satan wants to prove there's no depth, there's no reality to who you are, that it's just dirt that'll fall through, it's chaff that'll blow away, and there'll be nothing left at the end. That's his purpose. In fact, one person defined it as to try a person's faith to the verge of overthrow, to take them to the very limit. This was traumatic. This is what lay ahead for Peter. Why, Peter? Yes, all of them are addressed and it affects all of them. But why is Peter the one specifically to who this comes? I think the reason is in, in Matthew 16. Whenever Jesus says to Peter, I love Peter. Jesus says to Peter in, uh, in Matthew 16 verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Je Peter has just recognized that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He's the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. And in the background, somebody says, Really? Let me have a shot at him. Let me give him a shake and see whether or not you're going to build anything on this guy. Let me show you, Jesus, what your foundation's actually made of. Satan overheard that promise. The greatest sifting will come to those who have heard the greatest promises. There's some who will rarely experience sifting. But once you've heard the promise and the call of God... You better believe there will be a sifting that will take place. Maybe multiple siftings that will take place to see what you're made of. And God gives permission. You can imagine Satan saying to Jesus, you really think this guy is a rock? You really think you're going to build anything on him? Just let me give him a shake for a while. Just give me a few hours with him. Give me a few weeks, a few months with him and we'll see what he's made of. I've already taken Judas and I'm going to take Peter as well. Satan sets out his stall. And I love whenever you take the first part of verse 31 and the first part of verse 32 and you get Satan has asked, 
but I have prayed. Satan has asked, but I have prayed. Have you ever heard that somebody important has prayed for you? You ever been just, you know, someone has come home from a prayer meeting somewhere else, or you're just talking to someone and you, and you hear that, that somebody that you admire and you think they're quite important, you maybe look up to them as a role model or whatever, and you hear on the grapevine that they've been praying for you and you're all sort of chuffed. You're like, oh, really? Praying for me? That person? You know, and you just, you just feels quite nice to know that somebody's praying for you, somebody that you admire, somebody you respect. How much better is it to know that Jesus prays for us. Jesus actually prays for us. Peter, I have prayed for you. And one of the things you can guarantee about Jesus' prayers, he always prays in the will of God. We sometimes don't know whether we're praying in the will of God or not. We pray and we respectfully come to God and we bring before him our needs and other things, but we're not entirely sure necessarily what his will is. But Jesus knows. And Jesus never prays outside of the will of God. And I'll tell you another thing about Jesus' prayers. They're always answered. They're always answered. Always answered. And whenever he goes on to say to Peter that, that you're going to turn back and you're going to strengthen your brothers, he knows that his prayers are going to be answered. He knows what the end of the story is. In John 17, we get a little insight into Jesus praying for his people. And in, in verse 15, he prays and he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. <laughs> My prayer is not that they'd have an easy ride. My prayer is not that everything would be just comfortable and cushy and easy for them. My prayer is that you'd protect them from the evil one who wants to destroy them in the sifting that you'd protect them. And we read in, in Romans 8, and again also in, in Hebrews 7, we read about Jesus. It says in Romans 8, 34, he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. That's why a few verses earlier, Paul has written that all things work together for good to those that have loved the Lord and are called according to the purpose of God. Even when you're in here, and it's getting shaken, and there's nothing to hold on to, and everything's banging off you, and you're seeing things falling through the holes, and you're wondering, am I going to fall through the holes? Shake, shake, shake. All things work together for good, because Jesus is interceding for us. You just picture him in prayer while you're being sifted, while you're being knocked about and you're thinking it's like the psalmist. I was down here recently one night and I was praying Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? How long? And the whole time you're crying out to God in that shaking, sifting process, Jesus is before the Father saying, Father, would you strengthen him? Would you strengthen her, Lord? We don't let her break under this pressure, Lord. Don't let her crumble. Father, would you allow the dirt to fall through the holes, but don't allow him to fall through the holes, Lord. Give him strength. Father, would you let all the chaff that's in his life get blown away, but let the grain remain, Lord. Give him strength. Help him to see what's going on. Father, she's your child. I have redeemed her by my blood. Give her strength in the sifting process. Jesus is before the Father, day and night, praying for us. That should encourage us. 
I get encouraged when I hear anyone has been praying for me. <laughs> anyone. Linda came home from the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. I had left early to, to bring the kids home and came home and just said, you want to hear how somebody prayed for you? And I thought, yes. Jesus' prayers for us are infinitely higher and greater and more perfect. So when you're feeling knocked about, know this, he's before the Father, bringing your name to the Father. Say, Father, give him strength. Keep him upright. Keep him going, Father. Keep him going. Give him what he needs. All through your life, and particularly in those moments of satanic trial, he's bringing you before the Father. He knows what it is to be sifted. Forty days in the wilderness, Jesus was in here. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. The Spirit drove him into the sieve, into the riddle, to be shook about. And he came out in one piece. And look at what Jesus prays. In verse 32, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Didn't pray for you that you'd have an easy life, Simon. Didn't pray for you that all the challenges would be removed. I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. When everything is being shaken, that your faith will remain. It is in those moments of shaking that the quality of our faith really becomes apparent. Really becomes apparent. When you're under pressure and everyone can see it, will you crumble and fall through the holes? And will Satan then be able to hold this up and say, look, there was nothing there. It's in those times of shaking that your faith, you know whether or not you believe in King Jesus in those times of shaking. That you can cling to him when everything else is falling to pieces around you. And why is the faith important? That your faith may not fail because Jesus gave him a promise. And Jesus said to him, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. What is it that he's promised you? Now, we've all been promised by God that we're going to become more like Jesus as we walk with him. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, to the word of God, as we live in community together, we're going to become more like Jesus. That's God's will for your life. You don't need a prophet to tell you that, okay? You don't need, that's God's will for your life, every single one of us. But what is it that he's put on your heart that you know he has said, you're the one who can do this. David can't do it. Linda can't do it. You can do it. You can do it. What is that thing? And then the shaking begins. And the doubt comes in. And the loneliness. And things getting banged and hit off you from every side. Will your faith fail? Because Jesus is praying that your faith will not fail. And all of this is happening for Jesus, or for Peter, this sifting is all happening as Jesus is going to the cross. Coming to the cross and experiencing the cross is no easy thing. Whenever Jesus was on the cross, Peter was not sitting with his acoustic guitar on a picnic mat singing praise songs at the foot of the cross. 
Peter was getting wrecked, okay? The cross is a wrecking match. It's a wrecking match. As Jesus was being tried, Peter was being asked, you know him, don't you? You've been with him. You've walked with him. You're a Galilean. You know this Jesus. And he was being absolutely wrecked. As Jesus was going through the trauma of his trial, Peter was going through the trauma of these challenges and these these denials that he then made. But Jesus prays for him. Jesus says, Simon, I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And in in Luke further on in this same chapter, we read about the third time that Peter denied Jesus and Jesus looked at him. And then Peter wept bitterly. Can you imagine what was going on in his mind, in his heart as he's weeping? Can you imagine the voices that he's hearing? Look at you, failure. Look at you upon whom Jesus is going to build his church. Look at you who's been given a calling to ministry. Look at you who thinks he's been called to preach, called to build, called to plant, called to serve, called to minister to young people, to old people, to lonely people. Look at you. Look at the mess you've made. You're nothing going to be built on you. You imagine the voices as he's weeping. And when Jesus looked at him, what was the look like? It was not ever condemning, I don't believe. It was never a look, I don't believe, of I told you so, you've let me down. I believe it was a look of Peter, hang on, mate, hang on. <laughs> I've prayed for you, I told you I've prayed for you, hang on. I don't believe it was a look of scorn or a look of disappointment. I believe it was just a look of Peter, hang on. You can make it, you can make it. And Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back. One translation says, when you have retraced your steps. Love that. You've walked off on a wrong road. But you can retrace your steps. And that's exactly what Jesus does for Peter. Because in in John 21, and again, I've preached it before and I'm not going to go into detail. But in John 21... The resurrected Jesus shows up on the beach while Peter and the boys are fishing. And he makes a little fire of coals. That's for Peter. And he starts to cook breakfast. That's for Peter. It's all for Peter. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed and on the night that he went to his trial, Peter had stood at a fire of coals and three times at that fire he had denied Jesus. And when Jesus sets up the fire of coals, he's going to help Peter to retrace his steps. We're not going on a guilt trip. (laughs) It's not we're going to ask you this question, Peter, three times. Do you love me to make you feel bad? We're going to retrace your steps. You're going to return. I'm going to walk you through this, Peter. Peter rebounded. Linda's doing a course on on Monday nights in, in in a week or so called rebound and we called it rebound because it's about resilience and I love words and I'm always looking up words to see what they mean and then you know the score you go and look at what the Latin means and the word resilience literally means to spring back yeah resilience is when something is is pressure is put on it but it springs back again it rebounds literally rebounds And Peter is given a chance to rebound. 
He's given a chance to retrace his steps by Jesus, to be completely restored. What grace Jesus showed him. What would we have done? Yeah? Just imagine what we would do with someone like Peter. I said, listen, I'm sorry, mate, you've blown it. Because he, he really blew it. I'm sorry, mate, you've blown it. You know, you can still, you know, we can still be, be friends and, and all that, but, but you've blown it. <laughs> Boy, it would take a lot of humility, wouldn't it? It would take a lot of grace to walk him back through those steps and give him an opportunity to rebound again and to spring back. Peter needed this. He needed this. He needed someone. He didn't just need someone to thump him on the back and say, chin up, mate, keep her lit, you'll be all right. He needed someone to walk him through uh, the retracing of the steps. And only Jesus could do that. And after he has retraced the steps on the beach that morning in Galilee, Jesus then says to him in John 21 three times, he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. In other words, strengthen your brothers. In Luke 22, he prays for him. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, you will strengthen your brothers and your sisters. You will be strength to them. And that's exactly what happens on that resurrection appearance of Jesus when he says, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to strengthen my people. You're going to do what I said. It's only those who have been through the deep waters of these experiences that can really be a help to others. You know, you can read books all day long. You can listen to people who have read books all day long. But when you sit down with someone who's been through it, wow. You just get a download in half an hour that's better than sitting reading 10 books. Seek out people who have been through it, who have experienced it, who have come out the other side. That's where the strength lies. And maybe that's why you go through times of sifting and shaking and getting banged and knocked about. Because when you return, when you rebound, when Jesus restores, it's so that you can then be the strength to others that somebody else cannot be. Regardless of all their theology or all their knowledge or all their wisdom and intellect, they cannot be strength to somebody because they haven't gone through it. They haven't gone through it. And that's why we need a church full of rebounders, resilient people, people who have bounced back from the sifting because just coming and saying to a member of leadership, I'm going through this experience and getting a few verses quoted and and, and a few steps, do this, do that, it's not going to cut it. It takes people who have been there. It takes people who have been there. I tell you, any time I experience any difficulty, any challenge, I am straight down to get me someone who's been planting churches for 30 years. <laughs> straight away. On the phone, on Skype, whatever. Get me someone who's been there. Who's actually experienced it. There are books on the shelf about it. But the first port of call is, I need to hear the voice of someone who's been there. Strengthen your brothers and sisters. And he does so, and it's a big deal for him. And when he writes his letters, Peter, in 1 Peter 5.10, he says, When the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a while, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 
after you've suffered a while, he will restore you. (laughs) He will restore you. Satan has an intention. He has a goal for this thing. His hands are on the sides of it and he is shaking it. But the moment Jesus says, enough, the shaking stops. The shaking stops. And I wonder sometimes, we see a big change in Peter when we read the book of Acts and when we read the letters that he wrote And we know that between the Peter of the Gospels and the Peter of Acts, we've got Pentecost. We've got the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And we know, obviously, the massive life-changing impact of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on Peter. But I sometimes wonder, does there need to be an emptying before there can be a filling? Does there need to be a sifting to get rid of the crap, frankly, before there can be a filling of the power and the life of the Holy Ghost. Do we, do we underestimate the, the power of these two little verses in Luke 22 and what that experience achieved in Peter's life? Because after this is over, after this night of the cross and this weekend of the cross and the resurrection, when Peter got sifted and shook beyond belief, the arrogance was gone and the petulance was gone. And the bravado and the brashness of sticking both feet in his mouth was gone. Something had changed in Peter after the sifting. Some of the dirt had dropped off. Some of the chaff had blown away. How important is this sifting process? When you're in it, it's horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. But when you know that the king is praying for you, that your faith wouldn't fail, and that his plan is that you will return and that you will strengthen others. Imagine Satan's dismay as he shakes and shakes at the riddle. Bang, 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 bang. Everyone getting knocked about. And he's loving it. Big smile on his face. Peter in there. Whoever in there. Bang, 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 side to side, up and down, all over the place. Completely lost, disorientated. Imagine his dismay whenever after a while the dirt has fallen through and the chaff's been blown away and rolling around in the bottom of the sieve. There's nothing but grain, wheat, really good wheat. And Jesus says, that's enough. And he looks and he points into the, into the sieve, into the riddle, and he says, that's mine. You can have all the other stuff that fell out. What's in there is mine. Or to go to the illustration of the guy panning for gold at the river, and he shakes and shakes, and Satan's shaking and shaking and shaking, and all the dirt and all the muck is, is dropping out of the bottom of it. And Jesus is watching and he's praying, Lord, let their faith not fail. Father, let their faith endure this shaking. And he's watching and he's watching and all the dirt's gone and rolling around, rattling about. Didn't have any, would have made a great illustration if I had some gold, but I don't have any gold. But just rattling around in the bottom of the sieve, there's a nugget of gold and Jesus says, stop. That's mine. And he lifts it out. He says, you can have all the dirt that you love wallowing in, you just take it. I'm taking that gold. Peter's name written on it. Restored, strengthened now to strengthen others.
I love the fact that after the resurrection, <coughs> Jesus didn't go to Pilate's house. You know, if we had written the resurrection stories inspired by the Avengers or whatever, like we would have had Jesus going to Pilate's house and just whooping all around him, like, you know, just booting Pilate from one end of the room to the other, you know, just like, like, like Hulk grabbing his ankles and banging him up and down again. We, that's what we would have. We'd love that. We'd have him going to Caiaphas's house and Annas's house and racking all around him, walking into the Sanhedrin and, and pulling out a chair and sitting down and saying, what about you lads? It's me. Didn't do any of that. His priority, and I want you to understand this as we finish, his priority and the priority of death and resurrection is this, restoration. His only interest is Peter. Those angels in the tomb in Mark, in the last chapter of Mark, and whenever the, the people come to the tomb, the angels say, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And they mention Peter by name. You make sure you find Peter. Jesus on the beach in John 21, he sets all of that up for Peter. His only aim is to do something that will let all humanity know from the centuries until now and whatever's left, to let all humanity know that the cross and the resurrection is not about revenge, it's not about lashing out, it's about the restoration of smelly, broken fishermen like Peter. That's what it's about. It's about moving deeply in the lives of people who have been sifted by Satan and restoring them into the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. You have to understand, Peter is the first person who is directly affected by the death and resurrection of King Jesus. He is our reference point. What does it mean to humanity? It means restoration. It means restoration. Satan has asked to sift you. I have prayed for you. I win. <laughs> Jesus wins. Even in the sieve, even in the riddle. From the ashes rises up victory. Hallelujah. So I'm sorry I haven't preached the cross and I'm sorry I haven't preached the empty tomb <laughs> but I've brought what God's put in my heart because if you haven't gone through it, you will. If you are going through it, maybe this will bring encouragement to you. <coughs> you will return and you will strengthen others. Jesus, we glory in your resurrection this morning and we thank you, Father, that although the devil is powerful and he is not to be tinkered or trifled with as he shakes that riddle you're standing looking over his shoulder and the moment that all has been achieved that you want to be achieved you say stop and you say that's enough and you lift out the gold and you just leave him to wallow in the muck I thank you, Lord, for the times of shaking. Lord, when we're in them, we don't feel wild thankful about it. We don't feel appreciative of it. We want out. We want to come out of the wilderness before our 40 days are up. We're desperate to get relief. But Lord, I just ask that this insight this morning into your word will bring comfort, 
will bring strength to those who just feel they're being banged about all over the place. Gold is coming. Wheat and grain is coming. Lord, you will have your way and you will have your victory, Lord. Because Satan has to ask. But Lord, when you pray, the Father hears and the Father answers. And Lord, I ask for strength in this place. I pray that you'd strengthen each person who is going through a sifting process, Lord. And I pray, Father, when you bring them out the other side, that they will strengthen others, Lord. Because the church cannot be limited to the efforts of a small number of people. We need a room full of people who bring strength to one another and who bring strength to others, Father. So God, just give clarity, give a word of encouragement in the name of Jesus. We love you. We thank you for your resurrection power. Amen. Amen.